Welcome to the Provcast, the regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. I am managing editor Drew Griffin. Our guest today is a very special guest to Providence, Rebecca Heinrichs, who's a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and a contributing editor here at Providence. Rebecca has been a uh, leading uh, speaker and writer on a host of platforms, both on uh, television and at institutions. Uh, She's an instructor at the Institute for World Politics. And uh, one of the, I think, joys that we have here at Providence and one of the things that makes us distinctive is the uh, bank of experts uh, that we have access to. And so it's a joy for us to um, uh, access uh, Rebecca's mind and her intellect and her experience. Uh, So Rebecca, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. I wanted uh, just kind of before we began to um, lead our uh, listeners through a little bit of your kind of biography of, of what got you as a, a millennial interested in, uh, of all things, kind of like uh, strategic defense and going to the you know U.S. Uh, uh, Naval War College. Like uh, it's not a typical uh, biography of, of you know um, uh, a young woman in conservatism. So uh, lead us through how what got you to that point. Sure. Well, first of all, I'm an old millennial. I tell people, so I am one, but I'm I'm on the 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 older end um, of the millennial class. But I, you know, I was a freshman when 9/11 happened. Freshman in college, and um, at the time, I was uh, studying the American founding. I had just gotten into the great books. It was a classics program, Ashland University, the Ashbrook Scholar Program, and so just as I was. Uh, getting a better grasp of what the American founding was, what our country means. 9-11 happened. So you had an attack uh, on the United States. Um, and and in the case of 9-11, it really was an attack on what America is. That's that's what the uh, al-Qaeda was, was attacking. And so um, it, I already had an interest in getting involved in foreign policy sort of generally just was kind of growing um, towards the end of my high school, time in my high school. And then 9-11 kind of cemented that this was something that I wanted to study more. And then I had a series of internships um, that that got me really thinking about strategic policy. So we're, now we're talking about uh, nuclear deterrence, missile defense, Ronald Reagan, the Strategic Defense Initiative. And the reason for that is Um, You know, a lot of people, when they think about the negative effects of progressivism, they think about it in terms of domestic politics, and they they don't think about it in terms of foreign policy and international relations. Um, But but many of the problems that that, that we have faced in foreign policy, international relations, is, is that there has been this, this, this progressivism that has uh, seeped into that thinking. And, and I wanted to make sure that I could help make the case of, one, American exceptionalism and how the United States should interact in the world. And, and one of the most powerful ways to do that is through our strategic um, uh, policies, missile defense and nuclear deterrence, because that's the interaction of other great powers. That's this. That's those are the weapons that we use to try to stave off the uh, great power wars, and um, you can m- most clearly, in my view, see them as applied in in the way we think about deterrence and assurance. And so that's kind of where my interest went, and. Um, and so kind of over the years, I've had different jobs that have developed that expertise a little bit more. And, uh, and then, I, as you said, I went to graduate school at the U.S. Naval War College, uh, where I got my master's degree. And, um, and then I've been sort of in the think tank world. I had some, um, spent some time working on Capitol Hill for a congressman who was on the Strategic Forces Subcommittee on Armed Services, and, and then have really been in the, in the think tank world ever since. So having focused so long on uh, kind of our strategic uh, defense posture and our apparatus and, and things that uh, very much are kind of uh, not relics, but definitely kind of holdovers from like the great power uh, era that uh, that you uh, mentioned. And it's the same area that I, era that I grew up in, or roughly the same age. And we have similar memories of of uh, seeing different milestones of the Cold War ending and, and U.S. kind of um, uh, hegemonic power being unchallenged, you know, in, in the world. And, and you enter into a, a period of your kind of professional development uh, where uh, it seemed like uh, much of the debate and the discussion was moving from that kind of great power consideration and kind of thinking of a multipolar world and, and thinking more about this, this kind of um, 
uh, upstart ideological struggle with small factions of, of uh, you know, terrorist organizations that are stateless, that are wandering from uh, failed state to failed state, uh, using Afghanistan as a base, for instance, to, to attack us on 9-11 in the case of al-Qaeda, or uh, using, uh, you know, Syria as a proxy for, uh, you know, Hezbollah to run through and, and um, engage in Lebanon or engage in Israel and and there's been an intense focus over the last 10 or 15 years kind of on that small kind of minute struggle, I think, to kind of the, the detriment of the reality that there are still great powers out there, right? And that the United States being on the global stage and, you know, having a certain amount of power and kind of hegemony still is, is not completely unchallenged. I mean, so one of the things I've been really interested in in your uh, writing and in the speeches that I've listened to is, is kind of your uh, ringing the bell and the, the sending the warning signal, You're the canary in the coal mine, so to speak, of saying, hey, no, this it still really matters that we have this kind of apparatus and that we have this great power focus because there are these these countries like Russia, there are these countries like China, China is probably uh, you know, specifically that are out there. So uh, how did you kind of navigate this, this era of, you know, focus on kind of the minute to kind of maintain an interest in these larger kind of global struggles? Yeah. So um, I guess the the main the main thing that I've continued to to think about is that 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 differentiates sort of my the way I view this and a large part of the Washington establishment, national security establishment is that um, war is sort of the post fall uh, perpetual state of human beings. This is not, it's not something that, um, you know, that we haven't reached the end of history as Fukuyama, you know, talked about. We're not even moving towards that. We are um, human beings individually and then as nation states um, and then alliances, different regions. We have different things that motivate us. Uh, we have different value sets, different things that we prioritize. We do not share all of these um, ways of thinking. And so because I recognize that, I recognize that you're going to have large powers that are not going to leave America unchallenged. And, um, and, and be, the reason that we have had a relative time of peace with these great powers is not because they've sort of come to see the world the way we see it. It's that they haven't been able to compete with the United States militarily and economically. Um, and now uh, the Trump administration has recognized that we really are back into this era of great power competition. Um, the problem is you've seen we've seen China and Russia realizing that and moving along to prepare for that while we haven't, as you said, we've been focused on um, these these conflicts in the Middle East between sectarian groups of Islamist uh, militant groups. And though I think that that's important, we had to respond to this attacks on 9-11. We, I think it was right to demolish the caliphate, the ISIS caliphate, because when you do have a caliphate established, they use that platform from which they can carry out attacks against the West. And because our Western... Um, allies don't have good control of their borders, you're going to have a lot of these um, ISIS fighters or different different Islamist uh, militants traveling back and forth to those countries in which we do have really strong um, travel uh, agreements with. And, and so it, it becomes a, a problem for the United States and for Americans. But while we're doing that, we can't neglect, which we have unfortunately neglected, uh, preparing to deter great powers, China and Russia, and then should deterrence fail to engage in a military conflict and win as quickly as possible on terms most favorable to the United States. And so that's something that I have been, you know, I, um, I kind of joke with people, they say that, you know, I, I, I've been saying that the Obama administration's treatment of Russia was simply a disaster. I mean, you, they wrote right in the nuclear posture review, which is our document that sets the, our, our policy for how we think about nuclear weapons, American nuclear weapons. And in that document in 2010, it said that Russia and the United States were no longer adversaries. 
So it wasn't just this, you know, mocking of Mitt Romney when Mitt Romney was a candidate for president and he said that Russia was a great threat. And people kind of point to that because President Obama mocked that idea. But it was more than that. It's actually in our official policy documents that that the Obama administration didn't view the Russians as an adversary. And then people have pointed to me and said, yeah, but that was pre-Ukraine. They didn't invade Ukraine when that happened. But they were doing a host of other things, incredibly provocative, designing their nuclear weapons um, to to possibly be used in a conflict. They were um, flying dual, you know, dual capable. So these are nuclear capable aircraft in, in near NATO airspace. Uh, there was this a Russian entity that hacked the NASDAQ, I believe, and it was like a 2012 or around that area, 2012, 2014. They, they, they were doing a host of other very aggressive and provocative things um, that, that we simply, frankly, people wrote off because they thought that it was just we would never, the Cold War is over. We're never going to fight another war with Russians, and we got to turn the page on that. But simply because we want to turn the page doesn't mean the Russians. And the Soviet mindset is still very much alive. And um, and so that's that's Russia. And then, of course, China. You know, the idea for the longest time has been, you know, once, once democracy spreads and once these countries get rich, nobody's going to want to go to war. Well, you have, uh, we've, that's just proven to, to, to not be true, that in fact other things motivate countries other than wealth, power, fear, honor. These are things that still motivate, and they have a different idea about what's going to achieve those ends. Um, it's why President Trump is still having a really hard time convincing Kim Jong-un to get rid of his nuclear weapons because maybe he, d- he doesn't want Trump Tower in Pyongyang. Um, he, he's a, he's a he, you know, Kim Jong-un is a, is a Korean supremacist. He is a racist. He believes him that he himself is a god. His people worship him as such, um, and and so when you th- you think about um, the the different factors that motivate individuals, it's it's not all of the things that motivate the United States, and so um, that's just a constant. That is a that is that is going to be the case long after we're gone, and so you need to have people constantly reminding that we we aren't barreling towards this end of history. Um, we're going to have to constantly make the argument that the United States is um, is worth defending, and we have to be prepared to do that. One of the things that I would love to kind of get your perspective on is um, a thesis that we bandy about here often kind of at Providence, and it's it's the idea that, um, uh, and this is definitely a kind of a personal thesis uh, for me, that when um, you look at how the United States is, is kind of uh, acting around the world, and, and President Trump specifically, uh, he's been called a disruptor, uh, and, and certainly has kind of disrupted uh, the international order and kind of in the idea of kind of decorum, you know, in the way in which one speaks and the way in which one treats uh, allies and and enemies alike, you know, to your point about you know, Kim Jong-un, you know, he's he's been, um, other than the Little Rocket Man episode of his early in his presidency, um, very, uh, you know, complimentary almost of King Jim, uh, Kim, Kim Jong-un. And, um, and the same with kind of Vladimir Putin, uh, the same with Erdogan. There are a lot of leaders that he seems to to want to leverage a certain amount of uh, um, you know uh, personal relationship with. Uh, but then, of course, you know, closer allies and like traditional allies, he's, he's been a little bit more critical of. Uh, you've kind of praised this this disruption, even if it's kind of been imperfectly done, that it's kind of been a necessary thing. But one of the things that, that I'm interested in is like it, there seems to be a, a collective amnesia on the part of uh, maybe even among President Trump's um, uh, class, as well as I think sometimes the, the liberal class, oddly enough, that seems to forget um, how America has gotten to its position and how it's, its point. And it, it didn't do it simply by uh, ignoring its allies and making nice with its enemies. And that oftentimes, you know, Ronald Reagan is able to sit down with Gorbachev at Reykjavik uh, and do so with a little bit of rhetorical cover because he calls the Soviet Union an evil empire and is able to kind of draw those lines when they shoot down a, a Korean airliner. Um, and that there, uh, you, you call the... Um, uh, you know, uh, purveyors of terror, uh, part of the axis of evil, and you use that kind of terminology. And you know, at the time, the left would go kind of lose its mind, and now it's wishing, ironically, that uh, we had that kind of moral uh, capacity again. So, help us understand, or help me maybe understand the the virtue of kind of Trump's uh, disruption. 
uh, if, if there is a, a virtue in it, and if there is a criticism that could be levied, uh, you know, appropriately on, on the method with which he disrupts, and that sometimes there's a, there's a chance that in trying to uh, upset the liberal kind of apple cart that may be heading in the wrong direction, uh, you know, you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater to mix metaphors, you know, you're kind of, you're, you're not only, um, uh, you know, standing up against uh, the traditional liberal order, but you're maybe uh, subverting American ideals in the process. Talk us through, as maybe a, a Trump interpreter, a little bit of how you see uh, see his foreign policy there. Uh, so that's a great question, and that has been um, something that has, uh, I think, President Trump's effusive flattery of dictators has been probably this, this the signal thing that has um, turned off a lot of national security analysts to, 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 the, to the point where they can't even really understand what it is that he's doing or if there is a method in it. Or is it, is it true that the president of the United States actually prefers dictators over uh, those who are not dictators? Um the, the way that I have viewed it in the context of everything else that this administration is doing it is this. Uh, President Trump is very pragmatic. He's trying to actually exact an outcome with, with these countries that is conducive to, to increasing American security or giving the United States the upper hand uh, economically. And so, for instance, you so let's stick with the Kim Jong-un illustration um, it, it isn't as though I don't think that President Trump is confused about Kim Jong-un. I don't think that he actually wants to have him to Mar-a-Lago for a party. I think he doesn't actually want to go golfing with him because he finds his company enjoyable. And, you know, President Trump, if you, if you remember the State of the Union uh, during the fire and fury part of his presidency with North Korea, he outlined the human rights violations. He, he talked about Otto Warmbier. He, he was very clear about the nature of the regime. And because remember, it's the nature of the regime that is the reason that we cannot tolerate them having a nuclear missile capability that can reach the United States. Because even if they don't actually employ that capability, it gives them a coercive ability over the United States. And do you want to have this particular country with this coercive power of the United States? If they don't want us to go to South Korea, they can have, they can tell us and they can keep us out. If they want to sink another ship that South Korea's, how much, you know, it increases the risk for the United States to actually go and intervene if we really are concerned about their ability and willingness to respond with nuclear force. And so I don't think President Trump, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm, I can't read his mind. I don't think he's confused about that. Um, that's why he's so determined to try to choke off their ability to, to uh, use, employ, and threaten with uh, nuclear missiles. Um, but it's interesting because he does seem to believe that American presidents have unnecessarily antagonized countries that we're trying to diffuse tensions with by make by moralizing publicly. And so President Trump seems to believe that making the moral arguments is a means to an end. If you can embarrass them to the point where you're trying to pressure them to come to the table for talks, then he'll use that. If we've now entered into a time where we actually are negotiating, then he switches to flattery. And to what, what I have seen is, in, in the case of North Korea, he's making a hard sale. He's making a hard uh, uh, pitch to them about g making a different strategic decision about the direction of the country let's choose freedom and prosperity and you're a really wonderful guy and you're going to go down in history as this wonderful um, man who, who turned the page in, in North Korean history. And so that's how the president uses it. Now, I have been very uncomfortable with the effusiveness of that. I think that you can achieve what he's trying to do without saying things that are flat out false. Um, Duterte is still a bad guy. Uh, Kim Jong-un still oversees a large torture prison camp. Um, he has no qualms about executing children for the crimes of their parents. He, you know, so this is a, this is a very, this is an evil man. So I think that 
um, you know, President Trump, I, I call him the great clarifier sometimes because we can kind of see sort of <laughs> his presidency has made it very clear where some of our problem areas are in the world. But, um, but that doesn't mean he's necessarily clear about calling evil evil when he ought and good good, you know, you know, um, in a way that that is productive and instructive. So, you know, I think that he could dial down the flattery and still have a cordial way that he communicates about Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping, Kim Jong Un, you know, these these are these are individuals that that he can not necessarily moralize about or in the case of Saudi Arabia. You know, it seems like a lot of people want President Trump to really beat up uh, Prince Mohammed or MBS over the death of the Washington Post columnist um, uh, Khashoggi. But do I keep saying, but to what end? You want him to publicly lambast him, but to what end? That might make you feel good, but is it going to actually exact an outcome that's going to be better for human rights and for the United States? I would argue that it would not. And so I think President Trump sort of sees it that way. He can he can use criticism to exact an outcome, and he can withhold it if it's not going to actually be pragmatic and good for the United States. Yeah, I can... I can agree with that assessment. I, I would push back on it, though, and say that uh, one of the problems that I see with that is that the pragmatism that he's employing is is highly localized just between him and the leaders. And it seems to be this kind of atomistic understanding that has a, hard, a difficult time seeing the bigger picture. I mean, one of the values, uh, there may not be an immediate uh, reaction or, or response to a publicly moralizing or calling you know good, good or evil, evil. Um, but other people are listening. I mean, it isn't just the people in the room. It isn't just between the leaders. There's a larger global audience that I think, and this is what makes America unique and makes America special, uh, are looking to America for a certain level of of that kind of moral clarity of that certain because you're not going to get it from you're not going to get it from uh, a number of the Gulf states. You're not going to get it from Saudi Arabia. You're not going to get it from uh, Russia. But you can get it from uh, the United States. So one, you know, uh, uh, Ronald Reagan goes and gives a speech uh, before Parliament uh, during the Cold War, and he, and he says that we're going to relegate the Soviet Union to the ash heap of history, and it's public moralizing. And you know, liberals laughed and guffawed because at the time, and the liberal intelligentsia and throughout, like you know, Harvard University, and everyone said that the Soviet Union would last forever, and you know, it was going to be this this unstoppable force uh, till the end of time. And yet, you know, uh, Reagan, Thatcher. Um, Havel, these guys, you know, recognized that uh, that was not going to be the case. And his words, as, you know, um, unproductive and maybe unpragmatic, you know, they might have been in immediately achieving a result, were heard, you know, behind the Iron Curtain. And that level of moral clarity and that level of moral leadership is what emboldened, you know, uh, the the, force, the forces behind the Iron Curtain to, to rise up, right, and kind of seize, seize the moment and, and recognize the wave. So I would like there to me there's a value of um, and this is where I, I can't seem to see find a lot of conservative critics that uh, are comfortable and saying yeah no we you know can talk to these leaders we can engage you know uh, for our best interest um, but the way in which you know President Trump is doing it is uh, unproductive I think in the in the larger kind of picture well I would say a couple of things so, so for this time in history so a lot of that language that you're using he is using it with Venezuela right now. And he actually, he's making those arguments with Venezuela. He's um, using it with Maduro. He's showing how Maduro has completely wrecked his country in a very short amount of time um, because of his heavy-handed socialism. And and so, and, and we have been able to, we as in the United States, has been able to rally a lot of individual, a lot of other nations to come behind us and support the United States' effort to recognize um Guaido as the legitimate president and Maduro as an occupying force at this point. And, and so he, again, but that's, he's pragmatically, he's using that to an end. Um, the reason that I think it's not going to be helpful to, to make that point, I mean, okay, let's look at China now. Xi Jinping, as he consolidates power and he becomes stronger, I mean, he's, he's, you know, he's going to be, he's the leader for life now. There's no more term limits. He's um, very heavy handed towards Christians in China. He's snatching up Western, Westerners just as retaliation. There's, there's no, there's nothing that looks like anything we would recognize as due process or justice in their court system. 
the um, the Uyghurs, of course, the mi- minority Muslim groups. There's re-education, quote unquote, that's happening where they're just, it's horrible that the torture and the oppression that, that goes on. We're going to talk about the one child policy that they finally, and I think I'll allow now maybe two children, but it's still, I mean, a country that's so powerful that it knows how many children you have and can force abortions if you're breaking that rule. I mean, this is a country that it has enormous power and reach into its own population. Um, so should President Trump be talking about the uh, the evil nature of Xi Jinping in that regime right now? Because I would say this is going to be the the challenge of our lifetime. If there's ever if there's going to be anything that looks like, I mean, I arguably say that we are in a cold war right now with the Chinese, because the Chinese do want to remake the region um, in it in its own. Um, it, it wants to be a it wants to be a, in it. In fact, you could argue is in many ways a regional hegemon and and is challenging the United States in a variety of, of areas. And then in the long term, wants to replace the United States as the global superpower. Um, but is it going to be helpful for, for the American president now to be moralizing about Xi Jinping when the fact of the matter is the United States has been getting our lunch eaten by the Chinese when it comes to advanced military capabilities. So we we don't really have the ability to back up what we're saying in the in the Indo-Pacific in terms of keeping China out. I mean, we, we still are doing um, you know missions where we're trying to prove that we still want access to the to the waterways around Taiwan. Uh, but but are we in a position where we're able to defend Taiwan if the Chinese were to try to? attack and invade Taiwan? Are we able to um, adequately deter China from attacking Guam? Um, Are we able to adequately deter, credibly deter, and then engage China militarily and defeat them if they were to attack our, our great ally, Japan? I mean, these are very serious questions. And, and I would argue that in order for the United States to powerfully make the argument that we need to rally uh, other global leaders to help us vis-a-vis China, that we need to really re- rebuild our military and get into positions where we're able to back that up. So it's a different. It, it, it's it's we can't take the, what what happened during the Cold War with the United States and necessarily apply it directly to the United States in the case of China or or Russia. And and frankly, if you look at the rest of the world. Um, there's so many bad actors right now that we would just be preaching. I mean, President Trump would just be up there if, if we were just going to be scolding people or moralizing about um, the direction they're going. We there, there are so many different powers that I just don't think that that's going to bear fruit. I mean, we should actually care about the result and not just care about making the the moral argument, if that makes sense. No, I think it makes sense. I think that what you're describing in terms of just simply preaching is the idea of virtue signaling, right? I mean, that you're sort of just spewing out your virtue out into the public regardless, uh, and oftentimes uncaring and indifferent as to whether or not there actually has an, an effect on uh, the the space, and I'm not a big fan of the idea of virtue signaling. I am um, also not a big fan, though, of the idea of by our actions uh, signaling that we don't have virtues that we're standing for. Like I want, I want us, you know, by by our I, actions and by what we're doing to to signal that uh, w- whether or not we're rhetorically vir- virtue signaling, we are practically, in a way, you know, still signaling that there are there are virtues and values that we're advocating for, and we're willing to put ourselves down on the line. And then I would say, but to do that, we actually have to be confident that we can back it up. So if we're going to say we will not tolerate that you invade Taiwan, we better be able to actually make sure that they cannot. And are we willing to sacrifice men and women in the military to to make sure that that does not happen? Um, You know, I, I think we need to get really serious about protecting Guam, protecting Japan, because it means that if, if we're not, then we have just, then we no longer are the global power, that China really has gotten to the point where they can actually cut off the United States from actually having free and open access to the Indo-Pacific. So these are political calculations in the sense that we have to have the American people behind us, behind the government, making these calculations. But again, you know, the reason that virtue signaling is a problem is because this idea for just for the listeners, virtue signaling is this idea that you want to make the argument, but but it's just for the sake of itself rather than actually trying to exact an outcome that you really care about. And a lot of people 
signal virtue or do virtual signaling just to score political points. It's just because it makes them feel good without actually caring about the substance. Well, I care about the substance. The argument's important. Rhetoric is important. But it isn't the most important, and you have to be able to back it up with action. And so, you know, we, we have a we have a, the President Trump has a different set of problems ahead of him now that I think that he is he's trying to handle. One, of course, this this idea of you know, are are we an independent sovereign nation? And if we are, we have to have borders that we have control over. And I think that's one of the first most um, primary things. If you know, we are different than other nations. We do have a set of beliefs and ideologies that are different and unique. Um, yes, we have these ideas that are universal that we apply, but but they're, they're ideas that uh, that the American people as a citizenry has embraced, um, you know, as explained in the Declaration of Independence and in our, in our Constitution. And so if we are going to be that moral leader, we have to exist as a nation. And so you know, we've, we have a lot of very primary things, um, not a lot, but we have several very primary things that we have to get right in order for us to get back to this point, you know, where, where we um, are no kidding an uncontested global superpower. And, and frankly, right now, we're, you know, we, it's contested. It's contested both by China and Russia. So uh, Providence exists, Providence Magazine exists to equip the American mind to engage the real world. And one of the reasons, one of the ways that we do that, I think, is try, by trying to leverage uh, classical Christian conviction on, you know, modern issues and events. And that saying that there, these events, uh, these instances are happening within a, a larger context. And as we as Christians know that that's, that's an eschatological context, that's a theological context. Uh, but these things are occurring not just in a, a humanistic, you know, understanding there is a God. Uh, he is uh, provident. He's, he's created us to be kind of his, his regents and to be provident over his creation. And so um, I want to talk a little bit before we go to kind of a break about um, uh, the, the road that Christians can take in um, uh, kind of public policy and engaging in the United States. What we see uh, oftentimes on the left and on the, the liberal side is, I think, an incapacity to recognize evil abroad, you know, it's very difficult for them to see bad actors abroad. They they view anthropologically, you know, mankind. If we can just all cooperate via United Nations, via multilateral groups, if we can just try harder this time, we're going to get it right. You know, we're going to we're going to make this kind of secular uh, humanistic uh, experiment succeed. Uh, but then they have a disproportionate tendency to recognize evil at home, right? That somehow the United States, if there is evil out there, it's it's coming out of the United States and our own, you know, uh, heritage and our own kind of the mistakes that we've made. On the conservative side, on the right side, oftentimes they are perfectly happy to see and recognize evil abroad and call that out. But then they have a very difficult time seeing, you know, how the United States can ever be, you know, accused of, of any kind of um, evil or wrongdoing in and of itself. And so where I see, like, and I want maybe you to kind of speak to this as a Christian, as a um, a person who's involved in, in the think tank world and the policy world, who kind of navigates uh, this between ground, right, between these two worlds. Um, you know, I see that the Christianity, there's an opportunity there uh, for us to um, uh, have a kind of a middle ground that is able to see and, and, and point to the fallenness within us, but then the, the fallenness also uh, abroad, but then also that what's unique amongst Christianity and amongst Christian nations is that um, what would um, push conservatives off of, of caring about other people abroad, we can say, no, 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 people abroad, even if they don't look like us, even if they're not in other countries, they're still made in the image of God and worthy of, of respect. Um, and then what would we're, you know, push liberals off of uh, the United States? And, you know, we can say as Christians, no, no, you know, we are here made in the image of God and we're kind of worthy of respect. So there's, there's kind of a middle ground here. How do you, do you agree with that at all, first off? And then do you see, how do you see kind of your role as, as a Christian, as a policy um, uh, uh, expert uh, in this field, in this very highly secular world, kind of between these two uh, poles of, of ideology? Where do, you, where do you find yourself landing? Sure. Well, um, it's a big question, and then I would say, one, there is no such thing as making an amoral action. And so, you know, I, I, I will hear some, some individuals will say, for too long the United States has, has thought of ourselves as just simply 
um, spreading democracy as a moral good, for instance, or uh, always caring about human rights first to the point where we think that we have to intervene, even though the resulting isn't, you know, the result isn't any better than it was before we intervened. And, and so that, that the United States has thought too much that it could come in and be the Superman and, and save people who, if we could just lift up their governments and get them off their backs, that they would then be free and prosperous. So very heavy on the sort of, you know, mor- moral, um, moralizing. And then you have on the other end, some people say, no, 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 we need to just be realistic. Um, and, and how that's interpreted or viewed as uh, we need to take an amoral approach to things that it's just simply too complicated. And we should look at it strictly in terms of cold interest. Um, I would argue that that just doesn't exist. We are moral beings. We are, we have been created by a providential, all good, all-powerful God who has created us in his image. And so therefore we are inherently, all of us, regardless of race, ethnicity, what country we were created and born in, to we, as as image bearers of a good God, we are inherently of value and, and should be treated, um, you know, by our governments with, with dignity. Um, that is simply just true. And, and that is that's not my opinion. And there, there is an, a moral right and wrong outside of us, even outside of our own governments because of the way God has ordered things. Um, now, it, the United States, the, the founding, uh, recognized that there was the, this God who created um, all, all beings and, and that we are inherent, have inherent value. And that's actually laid out and expressed. The founders laid that out in the Declaration of Independence. So the United States, at, sort of at the time of our founding, recognized that there were these universal principles that did apply to all people. However, you have the Constitution, you know, that uh, that sort of frames the Declaration that um, recognizes that you have to buy into this idea, though. And that was the American founding. And so... Um, how I would, you know, answer your question, how I've navigated this is you do have this idea. I would say that sort of the political conservatives, those on the right, um, they, they do recognize that the United States on, on the whole has been a force for good because of our founding. Our founding was good. Um, now now where I think that they kind of fall off the horse sometime or where there's a danger in it is that they, that simply because our founding was good or as good as a man-made government can be, it doesn't mean that it was that we carried out the principles that we agree with and that we've all collectively agreed are true. That's why we're forming a more perfect government. So we're con- we have to be introspective. Um, that the Civil War was the a new birth of freedom. It, we we had to uh, have this bloody war not because the founding was corrupt, but because we were not living up to the founding, which was good. And so we had to fight a civil war over that. And then we've, we've, we've corrected ourselves in many other ways. But, but uh, what the founding means and what our country is, is inherently good. Those ideas are good as they are in line with Judeo-Christian understanding of government as it relates to God. And so that's what I would say. I would say, so we have to constantly, no, we can err. We err all the time. But we still are good, and that's where my patriotism comes from. Every American should be patriotic, even as we still struggle with the effects of slavery and where there still is um, um, racism that continues to flare up and pop up in various ways and um, where there are still things that we could adjust in the criminal justice system and you know all, all sorts of things that we're still dealing with. And I think it would be good for political conservatives to recognize that and, and to sort of and to work through some of those things. But it should come from a place of recognizing that the United States is still good. It's still good. Our, 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 the, um, by God's grace, our founding um, was good. Now the left, though, they actually believe that the founding was corrupt. That it isn't. It isn't that. Um, that the United States got it right, got the the founding principles right, and we just have to carry them out better and constantly be self-examining through our democratic process. They actually believe the founding was corrupt, that it was wrong because of all of the things that we weren't getting, that we didn't get right in the beginning. This sort of idea that, um, yeah, uh, just just the the Judeo-Christian understanding of human beings, that there really isn't this objective right and wrong, and, and we got it wrong. And that's why you see this 
uh, always beating up on the United States, thinking that the, everything that the United States does abroad is going to make things terrible and worse, and um, that we 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 are not an exceptional nation. Where you got President Obama that said that the United States is an exceptional nation, like Germany believes it's an exceptional nation. Well, no, if you believe that, then you don't believe that the United States is an exceptional nation. Um, and you've got a new crop of Democrat members of Congress that I would argue are um, they 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 don't love the United States as it was founded. They're actually trying to make it into something different. Uh, and, and so we we do have to be self-examining, but but these principles um, that 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 are laid out in in God's word of what government ought to be like in terms of its uh, uh, Seeking justice and having the ability to bear the sword, and doesn't you know the government does not bear the sword for nothing, and those sorts of things. This Christian tradition that we have long had in the United States um, is still right, which is why I still argue that just war theory, as applied to nuclear weapons and war, is still absolutely applicable because it is in line with what uh, with, with with how Americans have long thought about themselves and their and their role in the world. Um, so, but, but, you know, it isn't, it isn't math. It's, you know, there's not like you can just say, well, because we believe this, therefore, in all these different areas of the world, this should be U.S. policy. It takes an enormous amount of wisdom, prudence. I keep, you know, so we need to get back to really thinking through how can the United States prudently interact in the, in the world that, um, that still commends what it means to be American and is that city on a hill, uh, but can actually do good in a way that is conducive to American security and American interests. That is a very long-winded explanation. I don't I don't know how to answer that shorter because it's a great it's a great question, but it you know, it gets back to I'm constantly trying to remind people and that does not mean that I believe that you know the United States should have a theocracy. You know, that's crazy. Because Christianity you you cannot compel any person to be a Christian by force. You can't. You can't, and so that so there, it, that that's why you know uh, Judeo-Christian thinking um, has a more hands-off approach to government. Why it's why we believe religious liberty and not compelling a religion, which is why I'm very defensive of Muslims to be able to worship freely in the United States. Very defensive of Jews to worship freely in the United States. We want to have freedom to do that. We understand that that. Um, well, Christianity has nothing to fear from religious pluralism. We, we have nothing we, to we, fear. We recognize that um, ultimately we, that the side of truth exists and is, is in, um, and embedded in the gospel and in that kind of Judeo-Christian understanding. And so uh, let challengers uh, come as they may. There's this old kind of saying and this old uh, John Piper, who's a pastor up in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, has this famous kind of uh, quote that he often uses of where like... Um, uh, you know, the word of God is an anvil that has withstood a thousand hammers, right? So it's this idea that you can you can come at it with communism, you can come at it with, uh, you know, totalitarianism, you can come at it with any number of persecutions, whether it's the Romans or whether it's um, uh, the Muslims or whether it's, you know, uh, Chinese, any group that wants to, across the span of history, um, you know, uh, come against the Word of God, it still remains, it still stands. And so uh, one of the things that should embolden Christians, I think, to be the, the best advocates for kind of freedom and uh, democracy and liberty and the type of freedom and democracy and liberty that the United States kind of in, 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 uh, gives an example of, is that let let our you know let there be a marketplace of ideas, right? Well, let, let there, let be, there be a marketplace of ideas, and also, I mean, I mean, you, everything you said was exactly right. And if you look at the, it's the opposite of, for instance, ISIS and the Caliphate. I mean, right. what they actually believe that you can force conversions at the sword by the point of the sword, and and that is not what what obviously what we think is true and right or good. Um, and so for for the Christian. You know, you you want to be able to defend other religious minorities and other religious groups in the United States because you do understand that the more we can get the you know the the boot of government off of our necks and off the backs of the American families, the more you can have religious freedom. And and I would just tell Christians, I say one of the best things you can, you can do is just exercise that right, exercise those muscles very openly and freely. You know, you're not just a Christian at church; you're a Christian, period, and that should be very clear in the workplace and as you go about your life. Um, but, uh, but, but yes, and so the, these things are very much in line with the, the American founding, and that's why it is so important that the United States continue to have these vibrant principles uh, practiced and protected. 
Um, otherwise, it's very difficult to make the or the moral argument abroad if we ourselves are sort of falling into this, um, you know, in, in going down the dire direction or this trajectory that that is not anything like what the founders would recognize. So we've been talking to Rebecca Heinrichs, uh, senior fellow at the, fellow at the Hudson Institute. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we want to uh, talk a little bit, just do a little bit of a round uh, table about um, uh, events going on in the world and get uh, your perspective, Rebecca, on um, a number of different uh, areas of American foreign policy when we come back. back to the Provcast, the regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity, American foreign policy, uh, managing editor Drew Griffin. We've been talking to uh, Rebecca Heinrichs, who's senior fellow at the Huston Institute, and we've been having a wide-ranging conversation about a number of topics of conservatism and liberalism and America's place in the world and the Trump administration. And uh, Rebecca, uh, it's been an illuminating conversation, and I appreciate your time and, and uh, the uh, expertise that you've brought to bear on these issues. I want to kind of focus that expertise on a couple of different arenas in the time that we have left, uh, just to kind of specifically uh, address uh, for our listeners, uh, for the readers of ProvidenceMag.com, uh, issues of the Trump administration and their foreign policy uh, in, in specific arenas. The first I want to talk about is, is Syria. Um, there has been kind of this back and forth, uh, a rhetorical back and forth on the part of the, the Trump administration, where in December, uh, you know, president said, well, we, we have defeated ISIS. ISIS is defeated. Uh, the caliphate has been uh, wiped off the map. We're withdrawing our troops. Uh, only to be followed by Bolton and Pompeo and the administration, as is sometimes often the case, saying, well, no, 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 not quite yet. Withdrawal might happen, it might not. It's going to be over a period of time. ISIS is still uh, a threat in Baghouz and other areas in Syria. They have now been defeated, at least geographically uh, defeated, but there are experts you know, popping up um, uh, ad infinitum about the fact that they are still uh, an ideological threat in the region, if not a geographical threat. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about how you see America's role in, in the Syrian conflict and America's role in pushing against the caliphate and, and how the Trump administration's kind of a, it's comported itself. A simple question for you. So there Very you simple yeah. question. Um, <laughs> well, I would just say just a couple of things. One, uh, President Trump has demonstrated this pattern of um, saying something, making an announcement that is completely consistent with everything that he has thought and said on the campaign trail and since he's been president. Uh, but he's saying, no, I'm serious. I said I want out of Syria. I don't want to be in Syria. So now we're going to pull out. And and then it has taken that, oh, my goodness, he just made this announcement on Twitter. He's serious. we got to do this. It has taken that to get everybody around him to realize he's serious about getting out of Syria. And then and then you have everybody scrambling and saying, okay, Mr. President, we can if you if you give us six more months, if you give us two more months, we can actually finish the job, but we really will scale down the number of troops that are in Syria. And and then the president is sort of, you know, people say now the president has walked back because we are going to keep a, a, um, some troops now in Syria of small, much smaller footprint, and we're still going to mainly use the troops that are deployed in Iraq to continue to 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 take care of any any other ISIS militancy that continues to pop up. Um, but what what I've noticed about uh, not about how President Trump sort of operates is it, it takes that announcement to get people to really understand that he's serious. In the past, um, presidents um, uh, ha have made announcements and then they haven't really followed through on their um, commitments. And and so President Trump seems to be somebody who doesn't feel that same um, pressure that many more polished what I would call sort of professional politicians have felt to to just defer to their advisors and and uh, continue doing what what the previous presidents are doing. President Trump doesn't feel that same that pressure. He wants out of Syria. He he wants out of the middle. You know, I think he called Syria nothing but sand and death. And I thought, holy smokes, that's actually pretty poignant. And it's nothing but sand and death. He doesn't see it as strategically important now. Um, and he just wants us to kill ISIS. And he doesn't see other, you know, I would say, well, we also don't want to 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 completely cede it over uh, un, with, with no strings attached to the Iranians. 
um, because they're just going to have um, another fully controlled proxy state that in which they can use to launch attacks against Israel. Um, you know, but uh, so I was not supportive of of the of the sudden announcement. I didn't want our Kurdish allies who've been helping us kill ISIS to be just left to the slaughter because of Turkey's Erdogan, which is what we were afraid, you know, w- w- would happen if we immediately withdrew without having some sort of political agreement with Turkey. But uh, but now we, we see because President Trump made that announcement, we were able to kick up the tempo of our military operations, finally end the caliphate, the physical territory of the caliphate in, in Syria, um, go down to smaller numbers. And, and then President Trump then has said, OK, fine, I will let you keep some smaller troops there in order to make sure that, that ISIS doesn't pop up again. Um, and so that's sort of the way President Trump operates. He'll make it. I mean, you look at President Trump has been very hard on Angela Merkel in Germany and our other NATO allies to to pony up and to contribute more to collective security, collective defense. Other presidents have said it too, but they said it in a way that was uh, just more um, gentle um, and and didn't didn't say it in such a forceful way where people believe that there'd be a consequence where President Trump sort of makes these very harsh pronouncements and, and he, he wouldn't defend Article 5, which is to say that if one member of NATO is attacked, then the rest of NATO would come to their defense. He wouldn't do it. And, and the reason, you know, the, the, the way that I have seen it play out is um, he, he, he either says or doesn't say the thing that we want him to say or not say um, in order to exact an outcome, um, which is in the case of NATO, then you started to having allies contributing more to, to the defense of NATO. Um, and then you had President Trump sort of reluctantly defend um, Article 5 in the end. So, so in the case of Syria, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm now encouraged that we're going to be keeping some troops there. And I think um, I fully understand the sort of dialing down our expectations to what can actually be achieved in Syria, which is we're, we're just keeping ISIS out and we're going to help the Israelis um, try to keep uh, the, 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 the full power of the Iranians at bay. But, but Syria has long been a proxy state. Uh, of Iran, and that's going to be a really hard thing to disentangle. And so, again, you have an instance in which President Trump is weighing what are priorities, what can actually be militarily achievable, and then he's adjusting our goals as such. Let's move a little bit further east uh, to China and and talk a little bit about that. We've we've spoken a little bit about it in the earlier part of the interview of just uh, the United States relationship. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of uh, uh, President Trump's interaction uh, with Xi Jinping there in China and the conversations that have been had, um, uh, you know, again, there seems to be a, a pragmatism that is is located just kind of between the leaders. And oftentimes I feel like a uh, a loss of, of, of greater context that, you know, our relationship and our, our stance with China is is not only just a kind of a military uh, rivalry, but there is an economic depend, uh, dependency there that, uh, you know, the instigation of tariffs, uh, you know, wisely or unwisely um, have, has kind of called into, uh, called into question and you know, whatever leverage militarily we may want to have over China to stop them from becoming a, a hegemonic power, the like the the greatest I think leverage that we have is, and the greatest leverage that they have over us is economic. So whatever decision that we make, you know, militarily, whatever decision we make in terms of the State Department, it happens within this context of, of I think a heavily dependent economic relationship that's not going to go away. It's just not going to end. We're never going to be economically independent from China or China economically independent from the United States. Um, so talk a little bit about the, you know the Trump administration's rhetoric and and their um, maybe the use of the trade sanctions, the use of uh, of the Trump's rhetoric towards um, uh, Ping and uh, you know the U.S. foreign policy towards China right now. Sure. Well, um, I mean, you raise a good point that the economics are. Comp- I mean, it's the it's different different side of the same coin. You can't. Um, which is why President Trump, I would argue, has has taken such a hard uh, approach towards the trade issue with China because um, he, the way he views it is we're sort of at their mercy more than they're at our mercy, and or or that's sort of the way we've sort of been treating it, I should say, um, where we we can't fix the trade imbalance because there's just nothing we can do. Um, where President Trump. Has, says no. We we have to we have to handle this. We have to create a situation in which the United States has a greater advantage economically over China. Otherwise, they do have this coercive power over us. And it all goes back to 
President or I would um, uh, National Security Advisor John Bolton gave this wonderful speech about American sovereignty and the way he views treaties. And I would say, if you really want to understand. Uh, the, the sort of um, American nationalism of the Trump administration that really informs their entire approach to foreign policy. It's this idea, this, this, this concept of sovereignty. And you can lose American sovereignty or America's ability to, to interact in the world on our own terms if these other countries have economic leverage over the United States, military leverage over the United States. There's other forms in which they chip away at our, our independence of our, our sovereignty. And it's very difficult to, to take it all on at once. But in the case of China, you kind of have to. You can't just deal with it militarily. You also have to deal with it economically. And it really is a, is a model for, for uh, showing why the, the progressives are wrong that if we just open up these markets or if we just have um, capitalistic exchanges with these countries that we won't go to war with them or that we'll have more in common with them and they'll just want freedom and prosperity and they won't have an adversarial approach to the United States. China proves that wrong loud and clear. We can we can be reliant on one another economically and you can still see that they have very different priorities and values and that that not only don't align with the United States, that conflict and they cannot coexist. They, they're not choosing a future of coexistence with the United States. They want domination. Um, and so you have to handle the trade issue while you're also making sure you're doing patrols in the Pacific to show that we're not going to allow them to push us out of the region. We still demand a free and open Indo-Pacific. But as we continue to stay, say that, we have to now we have to pull out of the INF treaty that the, that the Russians have been violating because China hasn't been party to that treaty. And 90% of their missile force would violate the INF treaty if they were party to that treaty. So the Trump administration understands that and withdrew from the INF treaty because Russia's violating it. Why stay party to a treaty of which we're the only ones abiding by it? And it's actually disadvantaging us vis-a-vis -vis these other nations that aren't party to the treaty. And so now we have to build up our, our military um, capabilities and our force and position them such that we can now defend our insistence that the Indo-Pacific remain free. Um, and, and so you have to sort of take these issues on when you're dealing with China. You have to, you have to, I mean, and you can go on the cyber attacks, the intellectual property theft, all of these issues that um, we, we need China if we're going to actually handle the North Korea problem without military force. And, and it's a massive problem that has been neglected for a long time because of, and it shows you how important ideas are, because of this idea that we're simply not going to have an adversarial relationship with the Chinese if we do have these economic ties. And that has simply been false. Let's uh, move back here to our own hemisphere as we kind of close up and, and close on Venezuela. I know that you've uh, gone on, on air and on, on Fox and other um, outlets uh, talking about the United States and their policy towards uh, Venezuela. And uh, the issue has been uh, we've covered it here on Providence uh, through the Provcasts and through our own kind of print coverage. What, in your opinion, just kind of quickly makes Venezuela unique and what makes it unique in terms of, of you know, maybe the, the increased uh, harsh kind of hawkish rhetoric we're hearing out of uh, the Trump administration, uh, the consistency that we see between President Trump and his State Department in terms of there doesn't seem to be any daylight between them, you know, as opposed to maybe North Korea or as opposed to Syria or other areas, there there seems to be just a lockstep in, in terms of uh, uh, how they're viewing uh, Maduro and Guaido and, and the uh, uh, condition there in, in Venezuela. Um, what makes Venezuela different, do you think? What, what well, makes I think it's, it's, it's clearer. So you have this sort of confluence of clear American interest. It's in our hemisphere. It's in our backyard. And so what happens in Venezuela has a much more um, clear and agreed upon effect on the United States, not just because of the energy issue that Venezuela presents um, and how it affects the energy market, but also the fact that you've had hundreds of thousands of, of Venezuelan migrants, uh, refugees, leaving Venezuela because they really are genuinely, um, one, being persecuted for their political beliefs under Maduro, um, simply don't have uh, work to do, looking for medical care for their families. You have a collapse of a state because of a dictator. And, and so they're leaving. Now they're going into other countries. Um, the United States, I think, has had a, just a few hundred thousand of them because many of them are, are going to countries closer um, to Venezuela. But you still have a, a few hundred thousand of them. And so they have to go somewhere. You, know, you have a collapse of a state, and so you have now an immigration problem. And so it behooves the United States and for Americans to have independent 
secure neighbors. And so um, you, you want to see Venezuela be an independent and secure nation in our backyard. And that has other ramifications throughout the region. So you have a, you have a clear, and then of course, you know, because of just the way Maduro has ruled there, uh, you have the narco, uh, the, the problem of, um, not narco-terrorism, but essentially you have the, the, the flow of, of drugs, um, you have the, 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 the money laundering problems, all other problems that, that it doesn't stay localized. It spills over into the region and, and affects the United States. And, and so it's just, it's a clear example. And you have an uprising. You have the Venezuelan people. This is not something that the United States came in and tipped our finger, you know, put our finger on the scale to tip it over. Um, you actually had this organic um, um, toppling of, of, uh, of Maduro because of show, a demonstration of the will of the people to go with Guaido. And so the American people can then back that. You actually have a people who are fighting for themselves, unlike what we've seen in other countries where we try to do this top down and, and you know, get rid of their regime and let the people sort of rise up, which hasn't been the case. You have the Venezuelan people actually taking their own country into their own hands in, in, in many respects. So, so for all of those reasons, it's a clear, it's sort of a home run issue. Um, but now... Uh, we're sort of presented with this problem of how how much is Russia going to actually come to the defense of the now deposed um, illegitimate leader Maduro, and is the United States going to actually uh, you know use military force to back Guaido um, uh, against the Russians? And that's sort of the crossroads that we are now. But but you really do have the again sort of the the, the moral issues and the national interests and national security issues all very much very clearly aligned in the case of Venezuela. We've been speaking to Rebecca Heinrichs of Senior Fellow at the Hudson Institute and a contributing editor here at ProvidenceMag.com. You can follow her on Twitter at R.L. Heinrichs and read her, um, uh, follow her media appearances and read her articles at uh, the Hudson uh, Institute. Rebecca, thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you so much. It's been so much fun. Thank you for listening to The Provcast, a regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. You can find us online at ProvidenceMag.com, follow us on Twitter at Prov Magazine, and download this podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.